Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are joined this week by Megan Payne. Hey Kyle, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you doing? I am doing well. Excited that next week is election week. Me too. And then also joining us this week is Jessica Salaji, a writer at allongeorgia.com. Jessica, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me again. On this week's show, we are going to recap the Atlanta Press Club debates that took place for the candidates in the 6th and 7th congressional districts. These look to be the two most competitive districts here in Georgia. Um, So we're going to talk about those debates and what they mean for those races going forward. And then for our second topic this week, Luke talked with Richard Keatley, the Democratic candidate for Georgia Labor Commissioner. Uh, They sat down and talked about his campaign and what he would like to do if he becomes the state's next Labor Commissioner. So you're not going to hear from Luke right now, but you will hear from him in a little bit. But before we dive into our topics, let's uh, catch up on some news. And Megan, you... uh, put a news item on our list about new guidance around uh, transgender issues from the federal government. Can you just kind of give us the lowdown on what happened with that? Absolutely. So um, the Department of Health and Human Services is spearheading an effort um, to change the legal definition of sex um, under Title IX. And they're saying that the proposed definition would define sex as either male or female, and it would match the genitalia that a person is born with, and it's unchangeable. And any dispute about one's sex would have to be clarified using genetic testing. So those disputes about sex um, would be for those who are um, intersex at birth. So another term for that would be a hermaphrodite, which is not nearly as commonly used anymore. So what this does is it discriminates against transgender, intersex, and non-binary people from birth um, because it assumes that the gender that you're born with is the same as your biological sex and that that should stick with you your entire life. And as many studies have shown, including genetic studies, sex is not necessarily as black and white as we like to think it is, and gender is fluid. So even the genetic tests that would be performed are not actually conclusive at this point. The science just isn't there. So there's a lot going on with this. The New York Times did a really great write-up on it. And um, if you want to learn more about it, there's a ton of information out there on it now. But the the core of this, right, Megan, is that it's a change to a definition. So the the effects of this could reverberate in a whole bunch of different directions, depending on when this definition is crucial in in regulatory changes in the way that policy is interpreted. So like, I don't think you can correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think we even understand the full scope of what the impact this would have yet, right? That's that's correct. Things could come up. We know for sure that it could affect things like bathroom bills, about how dormitories work, about how prison housing works, um, and then certain rights or certain services given to people of a certain sex. Um, those are now uh, at risk as well. This could be pretty pretty horrible if it actually does go through. At this point, things are still in limbo as to whether this will actually happen, but it's a disturbing thought to see that that Health and Human Services is even exploring this. 
And then another piece of news. Um, so last week, over a dozen bombs were mailed to prominent Democrats, including former presidents Barack Obama and Bill Clinton, along with Hillary Clinton and other prominent Democrats, including uh, the big Democratic donor George Soros. Um, none of these bombs went off, uh, but it created uh, this real sense of insecurity and this sense that uh, maybe our political tensions have become much too hot. Jessica, what did you? What was your reaction to uh, the story about these attempted bombings last week? You know, I think my reaction was much like anyone's that it's just the place that we're at with our country, and that this is how divided we've become. But I was more—I mean, I, I was bothered that this was happening. But then to see the response from I guess both sides of the aisle on social media where between people, you know, calling for violence on the other side and then people calling it fake or calculated or a false flag. I mean, I just, I can't believe we're at a point in our country where there are threats of violence to people and we're saying that they're lying or, or even some people are saying like, oh, it's no big deal. To piggyback on what you were saying, Jessica, it does appall me as well that we're to a point where we're going to start playing the blame game and saying, oh, well, it's, it's your fault that this has occurred. And then to add a little bit more mystery to it and a little bit more issue, um, there was actually a bomb that was sent today. Today is Monday. Um, so this is several days after all of these bombs went out. A bomb was sent to CNN offices in Atlanta. Um, it was intercepted at um, the downtown Atlanta post office today. So this is still possibly continuing. There's no word yet as to whether or not it's a copycat or whether it's just a bomb that was discovered later um, by the same potential assailant. But um, this is pretty, This is it's, a, it's an interesting world we live in, to say the least. And then one other story to check in on before we get to our topics this week. Um, so on Saturday morning, uh, a gunman entered a synagogue outside of Pittsburgh and shot and killed 11 people during a service there at the synagogue. Um, what was y'all's reaction to uh, seeing yet another act of mass gun violence in this country? It's something that we've talked about several times on this show. I think the most prominent one in recent memory was the shooting at Parkland High School in Florida. Um, this is, I think, to me, one of the most somber and heartbreaking things that we discuss because as it relates to politics and policy solutions, it always seems like it's a struggle to find one. Um, what were y'all's thoughts uh, coming away from this story? Well, first, I just want to offer our condolences from Peach Pod to those that were affected by this horrible tragedy. Um, there are no words except for we are so terribly sorry and we can't believe this happened. It's just terrifying that, I mean, it's horrible any time this happens, but when people are in a place of worship, I think that there's just a presumed idea that you're safe and that you're in a, you're just in a, a place where you're surrounded by others who think like you and embrace you and love you and that this kind of thing could never happen. And when it does, I, I can't imagine how it would shake them to their core. Precisely. Well, and the president's comments afterward were so inappropriate. Maybe if they had, you know, an armed guard or security there, things would have been different. And that's so victim blaming and just not even the thing to say in the moment, whether you believe that or not, which I, 
I'm not sure what what would have happened if there would have been an armed guard, but that's it's not the moment to debate that. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, that while I, I don't think today is the time to debate that, I think that is increasingly the question that people face on this issue is is whether or not you know, there there seem to be two divergent paths in our politics. One that um, accepts the idea that guns are everywhere, and therefore you need to do things like have an armed guard or additional protection to uh, deal with that reality. And another that says that guns being everywhere is something that shouldn't be acceptable. Um, so I do think that now is the time for for healing for that community in Pittsburgh and and for all of us as we pay attention to this, but that seems to be increasingly the question of the two paths that are before us in our politics. Let's move on to our uh, first big topic for the week. So as we edge closer to Election Day, the Atlanta Press Club is hosting debates for candidates for Georgia offices, including two of the most contested congressional districts in Georgia, the 6th and 7th District. Um, So let's discuss what happened in these debates and where these two races stand a week out from Election Day. Um, Jessica, Lucy McBath's residency was seemed sort of central to the debate between her and Congresswoman Karen Handel in that 6th District debate. Can you give us the breakdown on kind of why Handel is raising questions over where McBath lives and where she pays her taxes? Sure. So obviously, it's a sensitive subject for Karen Handel because of the John Ossoff race. And um, then there was information that came to light uh, a few weeks ago that um, the Macbeths, who have lived in Georgia for a good while, were claiming a homestead exemption in both Douglas County and Cobb County. And um, I think that happened for two years. And then later on, more recently, her husband had established permanent residency in Tennessee, and they were still claiming their homestead exemption in Cobb County. And as of October 10th, the county revoked that homestead exemption so that whether she's a permanent residency here or not, she's allegedly wrongly collecting or benefiting from our tax system. And so I think as if you watch the debate, you can tell that Handel is hammering her on the word fraudulent. And I mean, we'll get more into that, but it's, she's trying to, it was clear she was trying to paint an image of somebody who's willing to take advantage of the system. And the fact that the system doesn't have a really like a self auditing aspect to it. Megan, what did you think of, uh, Lucy McBath's response to those charges during that debate. So I think her responses got progressively worse. And I don't know if it was because she got more and more flustered or if she had just run out of things to say. Um, but I thought that her her response her response was never precisely like this is my reasoning why. And you know, you don't see that much from politicians. That would have been about the only thing that could have put it to bed. And so from from the information that I have, I do think that Handel might be correct in what she is saying about her, uh, about Macbeth, that is. But it toward the end of it coming up, Macbeth essentially said, well, I don't know what she's talking about. And I was like, oh, no. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, you do, though. Like, we've just talked about this. Please don't say that. Um, so that was a little bit disappointing. You could just see her get more and more flustered, which made me really sad. I think she said, I don't know what Karen Handel or Representative Handel is talking about three times in the debate, but I, I was with you when she said that about the homestead exemption. I was like, but but your campaign has commented on it and, you know, the AJC's reported on it. 
I know I reported on it. I mean, it's been a pretty big talking point. So, yeah, the thing that stood out to me was uh, this was one of the points where she invoked her son. And if you aren't familiar with Lucy McBath's story, um, her son was murdered in a dispute over loud music in a car in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, I think this was 2012 or 2013. So at one point when she seemed to not be really able to toss handle off on the details of the residency issue, um, she said that that her, that she brought her son back to Marietta to be buried 15 minutes from their home, and that it was out of bounds really to question Macbeth's residency because of that. What did you think of her invoking her son in that moment? So I thought I find it very interesting when people bring up their families at all. I think I might have if I didn't mention this with the Kemp recap last week I meant to, which is that he kept talking about how he's a father to three daughters and how that somehow qualifies him for something. I think the Macbeth's case is a bit different in the sense that it is what has fueled her son's death is what has fueled her political aspirations. I'm not sure what her history was before that, but I know that after her son was killed, she started taking active stances against the NRA. And so when she's talking about the NRA and gun violence, I have no problem with her talking about her son. But when she's bringing it up, bringing him up in, you know, just to say, well, I brought my son home to Cobb to bury him here. And I would expect something like this from you, Handel, as a career politician. That's a little bit different. That's a bit below the belt to me. I took note of Handel's comment at the end as well. But Macbeth came off as very emotional to me. And that's not a good position to be when you're running against an incumbent. You know, she just seemed very, like everything was personal. She tied everything back to, and those are good things when you're talking one-on-one, but I don't think when you're on a a debate stage, when someone is, whether you agree with her record or not, talking about a record, it's just not something that allows apples to apples. It just made me uncomfortable that at that point, she was invoking her son to try to get out of whatever mess she has for herself related to her residency and these homestead exemptions and whether or not she's paid her car taxes. It was that was just a really that was an uncomfortable place for her to, to bring her son into that, um, to really just try to try to get out of those critiques from, from handle to build on what we were talking about, about, you know, what has motivated Macbeth to get into this race. Um, she and Karen Handel differ really starkly on the issue of guns and what to do about them. I thought Karen Handel did the right thing by when she got a question about guns, she first paused to acknowledge Lucy Macbeth's situation and and to praise her for allowing a tragic event to be turned into something of a mission for Macbeth. And then she turned and and quickly said, but you know, Lucy and I have different opinions on, on the the issue of guns. Um, what did y'all think about this discussion on gun policy between uh, Macbeth and Handel? I guess I was probably looking through it with um, a bit of bias, just knowing that Macbeth is very emotional about the situation and, and has a her own bias about it. Um, and, you know, I've, I've struggled through this entire election cycle. Uh, Handel specifically has been one to 
kind of distance herself from Trump. She she mentioned him a few times in the debate, but as a whole, you know, he hasn't been on the campaign trail for her, at least not yet. Um, and she's kind of been compared to some of the other people running for a reelection. She hasn't really been team Trump. And I just felt like Macbeth was taking an opportunity to talk about what happened with Trump and the NRA in 2016, which really doesn't have a huge effect on what Handel was doing. So I felt like that was distracting. And at the same time, you know, both in the sixth and seventh um, debate, they were talking about what they did in Congress to close loopholes and, and increase federal research and everything. But what is that really doing? Like, is that really a meaty response? I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't buy it even as a pro-gun libertarian. I don't really buy that as a big movement, you know? I agree with that, Jessica. I think that you said it wasn't a meaty response. And I think that that's, that's what I noted. Um, and that's what my notes about the conversation show. There wasn't much. There was Macbeth throwing some stats and aligning Handel with Trump. And then there was Handel saying that she supported strengthening the Second Amendment. Um, but she didn't really give any kind of specifics. So, you know, you have to go look it up, look up her record and the things that she said to go see what she even meant by that. So it was just kind of they just punted the question. Well, not they. It They punted the question in the sense that neither one of them particularly answered it. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Um, those, you know, despite there not being a ton of detail there and, and maybe not not a stance that Democrats would consider ambitious of Republicans, both Karen Handel and Rob Whittle, I thought, gave answers that they could not have given in the primary because the... It, it seems to me as an observer of Republican politics, particularly on guns and particularly in a primary, that anything that sort of moves the ball even slightly in the direction of an avenue open up to more gun control that you could get hit from the right on these gun measures. And so I think it was Handel who noted that um, she supported funding for research into gun violence, which has previously been uh something that Republicans have opposed because the NRA typically tends to oppose it because I think what you would find in most research you would do on sort of the underlying causes of gun violence. I mean, the stuff that's out there always seems to point to the ubiquitous presence of the ubiquitous presence of guns and that being the biggest hurdle to lowering uh, the gun death rate in the U S as compared to other countries. You know, I thought it was notable as just a step to the center that you probably wouldn't have seen in the primary. Um, and once we get back into primary season, you'll probably never hear them talk about it again. Echo what you said, though. I mean, when Rob Woodall was talking about his gun stance, I, I was like, am I am I really listening to someone who calls himself a Republican? I mean, when he was running against Shane Hazel, he would have never, ever said anything remotely close to what he said. I mean, I think it's a little indicative of just how competitive these districts are, or at least they appear to be. Um, I think right now, 538 gives uh, both Handel and Woodall about a 75% chance to win on election day. Uh, but these are the, the, the reason we're talking about these two districts is they are the only two districts where the party out of power has a shot to flip the seat. What did y'all think about the conversation around trade? Trade came up for both um, Karen Handel and Rob Woodall, mostly around 
the president's actions on trade, uh, the tariffs that he's levied against our trading partners and the deals that he has made uh, or renegotiated with Mexico and Canada. Um, I thought when this initially flared up and, and we were a few more months out from the election, that this would be a more salient issue. Uh, but it seems to, at least in South Georgia, outside of these two congressional districts, it seems to have been overcome by the damage from the hurricane. Um, but that impact on Georgia farmers and the resulting impact of tariffs is a little different than the impact you may feel in the 6th and 7th congressional district. Most of the discussion I've heard around trade on that has to do with uh, foreign car manufacturers, construction costs, things like that, that people might be feeling. Um, Jessica, what did you think of how uh, either of these Republicans responded to this trade discussion? I actually watched the debates back to back. And so it was interesting how close their responses were. I mean, they were very canned. It was you know, I've spoken with business owners and individuals in my district and everyone says that it's hard now. And I just reassure them that the short term pain is what's best for a long term success. And, you know, we are in a position to level the playing field for American companies. And they both said the exact same thing, almost in the exact same order. And I just thought it was interesting that that's that's the message that, you know, you guys are all going to hit some hard, hard times. But we're hoping it's going to get better on the other side, even though we continue to start new trade wars elsewhere. I don't know. I, I felt like their responses were very canned. Very. I can't remember the last time that I've heard an answer sort of on a debate stage or in a political situation from Republicans that like accepted the reality of a short-term pain for a long-term gain or accepted the reality that something that we're talking about is not all the fault of the Democrats. <laughs> so I guess that's what I noticed about that answer was, you know, it didn't, it didn't turn around, you know, they didn't turn around and immediately say, well, because of something President Obama did before he left office, this is why we're in this mess. Um, and so that's what I thought was kind of unique about that. Any Anywhere you look on sort of a broad look at these congressional races and the issues that are popping up in these races, um, Democrats are consistently focused on health care and consistently focused on pre-existing condition protections uh, for people with their health insurance. Um, what did y'all think of the health care discussion uh, in, in either one of these debates? You mean the non-existent health care discussion in six? Did oh, that's right. It didn't really come up in the sixth, which was. The yeah, thing well, I was that but say. that's but that's a point. Like it yeah. didn't come up in the sixth. Yeah. Um, and so the I mean the sixth was a lot more worried about Macbeth's residential status than anything else. So that was probably more than half of it. When it get right down to it, but in the seventh, I noted that yeah, pre-existing conditions were a big deal. I was a little bit confused by what Woodall said at first. I think he stated it kind of funny, um, but he talks about pr protecting. Um, what did he say? It was something to the effect of, like, pre-existing conditions are okay. I can't remember what his message or He was saying that the Republicans did it a long time ago, but the way that he said it made it seem like 
he was acknowledging the Republicans did something bad. Yes. Yes. And so that's why I'm like, I'm like looking at my notes and remembering that things were a little weird. And now that I'm even trying to articulate it, I can't articulate what he said. I think he got very confused on that question, or maybe he was trying to articulate something that never actually came out, but it ended up making him and the Republicans as a whole over the last couple of decades look bad. I thought he kind of missed the mark on, on both of those answers. He um, then pivoted to, so, so Bordeaux asked him a question about pre-existing conditions and healthcare. And I was surprised that he didn't then turn around and get off the subject for his question. And he responded to her with a different healthcare question, um, which he, I think conflated the fact check on. He, uh, tried to say that I think he was basically trying to say that there's a lot of fake ads go- or a lot of incorrect ads going around about Republicans position on these issues and, and to kind of muddy the water. But he did, he, you know, the, the interesting thing that I think is a little bit frustrating about this healthcare discussion that I think is necessary as we come up to the election is both Republicans and Democrats are saying that they're going to protect pre-existing condition protections that are already protect- protected in current law. And it was Republicans who in 2017 had a very long drawn out debate about getting rid of uh, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, and replacing it with a law that would not have offered the same level of protection for pre-existing conditions. It would have kept the policy that you could not be denied from your insurance if you had a pre-existing condition, but it would have basically taken some of the uh, protections on plan pricing away to the point of um, the insurance companies could have offered plans that offer protections for pre-existing conditions to people with poor health status that were way too expensive for people to afford. And so I think what is important as this conversation comes to a close and as we get to election day is there really is a sharp divergence between Republicans and Democrats on what they have done on healthcare in the last, uh, you know, seven, eight years. Um, and uh, that distinction, what, whatever side on that distinction you fall, that distinction seems to be collapsing in the final days because Republicans, in my opinion, are saying that they will protect something that they have actively voted to undermine on several different occasions. Um, the other uh, place where I thought healthcare was interesting was that it did not get much airtime in the sixth congressional district debate, like you said, Megan. And this was where I thought. Lucy McBath might have made her biggest error in that debate with Karen Handel is that she, as far as I could tell, didn't actually seem to ask a question of Karen Handel during the candidate question section. And healthcare is this issue that Democrats have repeatedly come back to. And it was the issue that I would have expected Karen, that I would have expected McBath to invoke in that moment. And she sort of just let the discussion about her residency keep going instead of, uh, change in direction, which I thought was kind of a mistake on her part. I feel like Handel wiped the floor with Macbeth, and maybe it's not indicative of who Macbeth is as a candidate, and, you know, she's not an experienced debater, but I, I did not feel like she articulated her platforms well. I don't feel like she defended herself well, and like you said, she kind of kept, she let the conversation hover on the worst part about her campaign right now, which is whether or not she's being honest. 
And she even kind of drew attention to it by saying, you know, Handel's trying to dampen my credibility or however she phrased that. But whereas, you know, in the other, in the seventh, I felt like Woodall just, the only question that I felt like he answered that wasn't full of rhetoric or dishonest was the one about entitlement benefits. And he explained it with taxation and how we're taxing, we have more tax coming in than we've ever had. So it's not a taxation problem. It's a spending problem. But other than that, I felt like he did terrible. So, Well, that do you think that that uh, answer on taxes was an error on Woodall's part? Because Democrats have been ecstatic with what uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said, that it wasn't the tax cuts, the big tax cut bill that Republicans passed in Congress. It wasn't that that was driving the debt. It was... Uh, spending on entitlements, and that a bipartisan deal on cutting entitlements was necessary. Um, Democrats, I think, have been eager to get off any message that is not immigration, or the things that Trump wants to talk about the the daily outrages of, of Trump. But this is a bit of a division in the Republican Party where Trump campaigned saying that he wouldn't make any cuts to entitlements. Uh, but Mitch McConnell is now saying that a bipartisan deal on those cuts is necessary to deal with the debt. Um, do you think that what all do you think that he made a mistake on that question? I don't know if he made a mistake. I mean, his entire, you know, image throughout the whole campaign as someone from who was a libertarian conservative he looked like a Democrat to me more than he looked like a Republican. So it, I don't feel like it's very out of line um, with what he was saying, what he actually believes. I mean, a lot of his stuff was very middle of the road, straddling the line, trying to, you know, not step on any toes. And I feel like this was maybe just a little bit of that. I agree. Not necessarily with the that particular aspect of like for that question, but I kept noting they agree. They agree for a, a few points where I expected them to disagree more strongly on overall points, they did disagree. But for example, one thing they agreed on was that arming teachers was a bad idea. And I would not expect that necessarily. I wouldn't expect a Republican candidate to actually say that. Um, and so I think you're right, Jessica, that he is trying to straddle the line on a lot of his answers. Well, and his district is the closest of the two. I, the odds on 538's model go back and forth, but I think the general consensus among whether or not the 6th or the 7th is more likely to flip to the Democrats, the 7th, I think, is is the one that's chosen more often. One uh, kind of final issue that has illuminated this campaign down the stretch is the issue of immigration. And Trump has repeatedly invoked the caravan of migrants coming from Central America en route to the border with Mexico and the US. Karen Handel, I thought, also hit this issue pretty hard. She talked a couple of times about uh, the caravan storming into our country. Um, <laughs> and I don't... I don't think she was as direct, but it, it sort of recalled uh, some of the uh, conspiracy theories going around about the caravan having uh, terrorist infiltrations in it when there's no evidence of that from any reporting that I've seen. What did y'all think about that discussion around immigration? On a non-serious note, I kind of wish that I had anticipated that and had turned this into some sort of like 
task-oriented word, like if I were to do like a drinking game or an exercise game while watching these debates, because the word caravan came up so many more times than I expected, and I just found it very amusing. On a more serious note, however, um, I do think it was interesting how many times the caravan was invoked and talking about thousands of people coming to storm our border and such things, and I thought Bordeaux's answer was phenomenal. Um, She was basically like, we're the greatest country in the world. We shouldn't have to worry about 5,000 immigrants coming to our border for safety. And of of all four candidates, she had the best answer. I don't re- remember what Macbeth really said about the caravan, if she said anything. So maybe I should say of the three candidates that spoke about it. But her an- Bordeaux's answer was phenomenal. Uh, Jessica, what did you think? You know, I was surprised at how many times Karen Handel brought it up. Um, and I was, I guess, we don't always expect our candidates and elected officials to be like so on top of things that are happening right now. So I was just surprised that that came into play um, the way that it did, even without being prompted. I didn't agree with Bordeaux's comments, but I I can understand why someone that leans to the left would think it was a very good answer. Um I felt like it was very honest and I felt like it was very genuine. And she said over and over that, you know, her approach would be to treat people with dignity and respect, which I think has been a common, a common theme among Democrats, which I can certainly respect. Um, The only thing that Macbeth said about immigration that I felt was maybe out of line was she, she really honed in on assessing every situation individually. And I just feel like that would really slow down the process. Um, Sound policy can't be a one-size-fits-all, and there are times for weighing something on an individual basis, but looking at every individual situation is, is I feel like, just going to clog the system even more. Is this an issue, Jessica, that you feel like is still resonant among voters as it comes up to the general election, I, this got a lot of play in the primary, particularly on the Republican side, and it seems to have been an issue that is really animating to Republican voters. Um, but have you noticed if that if the emphasis on this issue has sort of faded as we get further from the primary and, and we're almost up on election day? I mean, Brian Kemp isn't running his truck ad anymore. In all seriousness, I, I do feel like it has faded a little bit. Maybe the caravan is going to amp that back up i'm not sure in time but it just doesn't seem like anyone has really focused on that kemp even after the primary talked about it a little bit um in a lot of his press releases and in some of his videos and stuff but i don't feel like it was maybe a center of the campaign and they kind of quickly moved on to some other things i don't think it just ranks among the most important issues especially in these two districts come down to rural Georgia and you might hear a little different story. Um, so let's wrap this up with, with both of y'all's sense of where these elections are um, a week out from election day. Do you think that Democrats, we can start with you, Megan. Do you think that Democrats will flip one or both of these seats from Republican control? I am very hopeful that they, the Democrats, I shouldn't say they, we um, will flip one. I, have actually more hope for seven than for six. Um, I had a lot of concerns about I've I've had a lot of concerns about six from primaries. So, you know, just to throw that out there, I and and honestly handle while 
I kind of hate her guts. She she can she can do politics. But I really did like Bordeaux. I thought that she did really well. When I first the further away I get from that debate, the more and more I think she just nailed it. At first I was like, okay, like that was a pretty balanced debate. That's what I want to see in a debate. I want to come away thinking that um, I don't like debates where I come away thinking that somebody is a like solid winner. But the more and more I get away from it, the more I'm like, yeah, yeah, that answer was actually really great. We'll, like, we'll stand up to being picked apart. Um, so I actually have a lot of hope for seven. And I'm really hoping that Bordeaux wins. Jessica, what do you think about these two districts? All I really want to say is that if I had to offer someone to sacrifice, it would be Woodall. <laughs> so if you want to have the seat, I'm okay with that. Yeah, I do. I do think he is the the most in danger one of the two. I think that both of these races, though, are going to be a good measure of whether or not the blue wave for Democrats materializes, um, because these both of these districts seem as about as far as Democrats can reach in a good year for Democrats. Um, I don't think either of these would be on the map in a good year for Republicans. Um, but they're also going to be particularly in the seventh, they're going to be a good barometer of demographic changes in the state and in that district, and probably a good barometer of the ground game for the state level campaigns. Um, because you have some competitive state house races in the metro Atlanta area, and you've got, uh, candidates on both sides of the aisle, um, trying to turn out their voters for Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. So I, I think that all of these, all of the other things going on in our politics, um, you're going to get a measure of how impactful they are on voting from both of these races. All right. Uh, well, with that, we are going to wrap that there. And so I will turn it over to Luke uh, for his conversation with Richard Keatley, Democratic candidate for labor commissioner. Hello, my name is Luke, and I'm here as always, as Peach Pog, a Georgia politics podcast. And today I am very excited to be joined by Richard Keatley, the Democratic nominee for the Commissioner of Labor. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I know you've been uh, pretty busy out there on the trail, probably not only introducing uh, yourself to the electorate, but also mm-hmm. your position, because I believe many people don't even know that we have a Commissioner of Labor. That is true. And the truth of the matter is a lot of states do not elect their commissioner of labor. It is a very important position, uh, but a lot of states appoint the commissioner of labor. The governor's elected and then appoints all of the a lot of the executive offices. But in Georgia, the Constitution calls for electing a lot of these positions, among them commissioner of labor, uh, insurance commissioner, superintendent of schools, all of these positions you can choose to go with or not with your party if you'd like to and even have, you know, different people voted for and for different people. So it allows us more democracy in the end. So it sounds like you're you're a fan of electing the commissioner of labor. I am. I am. I think that uh, the more democracy we have in our system, the better. Yeah, so uh, for our viewers who, or listeners rather, mm-hmm. for our listeners who don't know, uh, you know what the commissioner of labor is and what what they do. What does the commissioner of labor do? Commissioner of labor is the, in charge of the Department of Labor, uh, manages the unemployment insurance program and all the employment programs, uh, works on workforce development. So trying to keep Georgia's workforce 
uh, prepared for what's going to come in the future. So we have a lot of uh, challenges right now with automate, uh, the automation of, of many industries, with uh, the changing economy, with companies that are sometimes trying to shift uh, the burden of long-term investment onto onto workers' backs through the use of uh, of 1099s and you know using them temporary employees and contractors rather than full-time employees. So all of these challenges are things that the Commissioner of Labor uh, is is called to to work on and and think about. Mostly, however, he should be the person who is thinking about working working conditions in the state and the status of the workforce 365 days out of the year. So while our elected officials go to the legislature, say 40 days to do the session and vote to change laws, the Commissioner of Labor executes those laws full time. Yeah, so uh, one of the things that our uh, friends, uh, our Republican friends love to say is that Georgia is the number one state to do business. Mm -hmm. And while we have actually lost that ranking in in the interim uh, between Mm -hmm. deals elections, a lot of times people, uh, when, when they say that, they're very much so viewing it from the point of the people who run businesses and not the people mm-hmm. who work for businesses and right. workers. And so right. what, what is the state of Georgia's workforce? Yeah, Georgia it ranks near the bottom in almost all categories regarding its workers. Um, there are some that even put us at 48th place for the condition of workers in general. Uh, we're in the bottom 10 in home ownership. We're in the top 10 in poverty. We're number 42 in economic opportunity, which is the measure of whether someone can move up the socioeconomic ladder. So 41 states do better than us, than uh, better than Georgia at doing this. So the status of our workforce is not good. This sort of leave, let the companies do. I do not believe that you can that being pro-business means you have to be anti-worker. I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time and uh, take care of our workforce, make sure that their, their rights are protected. And I think actually the best companies already do this in Georgia, but uh, we need to make sure that the, the companies that are not doing this are held responsible so that they don't gain a, a competitive advantage against the, against the good companies. Yeah, are, are there um, some examples of companies that you want to highlight that are you know treating workers the way that they need to be treated in Georgia? Because yeah, you know, a lot of times people on can't you know the campaign mm-hmm. trail they, they hit on the things that aren't going right and it's, yeah. and, yeah, and yeah. it's difficult to find examples that people can look to. It's like hey, this is how you can do it, and there's people that are doing it right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard good things about Delta from the employees themselves that uh, work in the, in the, for Delta Airlines. I think they're doing a good job. What made you want to run for Commissioner of Labor? Well, Georgia's being number 42. One, I, I believe that we all need to participate in our democracy a lot more. As you know, my background is I, I grew up in a union. Well, I might know, but a lot of people oh, okay. don't know. So yeah, you yeah, should, you talking, should tell people what your yeah, background is. Yeah, we're talking is. on the, on the thing. So, yeah. so I grew up in a, in a working class family, a union household. And my uh, father worked in a factory his entire life. My stepfather worked for the Goodyear Tie and Rubber Company and was a member of the United Rubber Workers Union. And we had a, a pretty stable lifestyle back in the late 70s, early 80s when I was growing up. And we've seen a lot of these things, uh, these, these protections for workers eroding over the past 30, 40 years. And working family wages have remained stagnant for 40 years, since 1978, Working families have received a 9% pay raise as the cost of living has gone up 300% and as executive pay has gone up 900%. 
So I don't really buy the argument that globalization is taking away jobs as much as our politicians have refused to represent the interests of workers. So what's, what's disappeared have been pension plans, traditional pension plans, or even significant contributions to employees' 401ks, lack of access to quality health insurance, um, and, uh, and decent, decent pay. Now, Georgia has a, a minimum wage that's a theoretical minimum wage of 515, which is basically saying we don't have a minimum wage because we have to use the federal 725 an hour. But even that 725 an hour hasn't been updated in many years. When I went to college in 1983, during the summer before my freshman year, I went and worked part-time in a, in a little factory, a non-union shop. I made 750 an hour during that summer before going to college. And so we're still expecting families to live on a wage that is nowhere near a living wage. So these kind of things to me are very important because I lived in, in effect, the American dream. Uh, I got to go to college. I went on a Naval ROTC scholarship to Virginia Tech where I majored in nuclear science. I took a commission in the Navy. I got to see the world. I uh, learned how to drive, a, to navigate a ship, to operate the, a boiler, to do cargo operations. I learned languages, traveling around the world. Eventually went and got a PhD and, and taught in, uh, at Georgia State University for 15 years, helping other students uh, achieve their dreams, do things that I don't think that they thought they were able to do before they came to me. And that's what America's all about. So that's, that's what inspired me to do this, because we need to do better in Georgia than being number 42 in economic opportunity. We have a lot of thriving businesses, a lot of businesses that are coming in and creating jobs, and we're not doing a good enough job for Georgians to get those jobs. So ironically, we have high-paying jobs that are left unfilled, or we hire people from Chicago, we hire people from out of state, and we have one of the highest poverty rates in the state. So I think we can do a lot better a job of getting our universities, our technical schools, our apprenticeship programs, and nonprofits and schools across the state working together so that we can pipeline people into those high-paying jobs and, and, and make this place the best place for workers. Yeah. And one, one thing is you hit on earlier is that you are uh, an executive you know, official. You'd mm -hmm. be a statewide executive right. official. And so you'd be enforcing the laws that the legislature right. gives you. And right. even if we have a Democrat governor, more mm -hmm. than likely, barring a miracle, we're going to have a Republican legislature. Mm -hmm. And so how much do you think you would be able to do in the position with those considerations in mind? Well, many of the labor laws are determined by federal law, and simply Georgia is not enforcing them. Let's take the question of misclassification, which sounds like a boring technical term. Um, they're calling you the wrong thing. Who cares? As a law it's, student, I care. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. It's actually stealing people's wages. So there is a definition, a federal definition of what an employee is. If your employer tells you when to come to work, uh, when to take a break, what to do, you're an employee. And they're required by law to hire you as an employee. And often with that, well, it all, you always get unemployment insurance contributions with that by law. Many of the companies then have to also make contributions to your pension or 401k, have to make some sort of health insurance. But if you take that same worker, let's say that same worker was making $25 an hour with health insurance and a pension plan, and you offer him $27, $27 an hour with none of those benefits, he's actually making less. So they put, put them as a, 
as a contractor, and then that employee has to pay for health insurance, pension plan, and will never have unemployment insurance program. So if we have a situation like 2008, when the, comp- when the country is in free fall, uh, we're having a big crisis, if no one has access to unemployment insurance, it's going to be all the harder for us to pull out of that. So something like that is something the Commissioner of Labor can do. I can do the inspections to see if the companies are obeying the law and how they classify their workers so that the companies that are cheating are not cheating the companies that are doing things right. And that is an important role. I'm sure you've had a lot of uh, interest in pursuing that in the state since that is such a a thoroughly uh, concerning problem. And so, you, you know, this is a, a pretty big election. There's mm-hmm. a lot of races that Very are getting, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot <laughs> of attention. And uh, what has been your experience being on the trail, being, you know, part of a election with a lot of interest in a position mm-hmm. that probably doesn't have as much interest as, you know, Stacey Abrams or Beggar O'Rourke in Texas, who's, you know, continuously making, you know, national news. What, what is the experience of a, you know, down ballot Democrat mm-hmm. in Georgia. It's it's been wonderful the experience really. It is normal that people don't know a lot about some of these positions that don't sound like they're as interesting, but they actually wield a lot of power. The, the Department of Labor receives 133 million dollars a year from the Department of La- the Federal Department of Labor, and so that money needs to be used efficiently and it needs to be used in the way that will best help build paths to a middle class future for for Georgians. Um, but yeah, there is a lot of excitement around there out of the, at, for the top of the ticket um, for some of the congressional positions. But what I think is most heartening to me is that all of the local positions, the, the House districts, in, even in districts where Democrats are not going to win, have people out there competing in a significant way. So it's, a, it's part of voter education. I mean, in most states, if you elect a commissioner of labor, there'll be people just fighting tooth and nail to try and win this thing. And in Georgia, they say, oh, I didn't know we had one of those. And my funny answer is that, yes, you don't know we have one of those because the current commissioner of labor is not doing his job. Um, but uh, they, they are important positions. So, so, yeah, from a human standpoint, it's been quite exciting to follow along with the Abrams campaign. And I get to speak to a lot of people, meet a thousand people that never, uh, that didn't know me before. And then they understand after I speak for a few minutes, then they understand the importance of this position and how much of an impact it can have. Let's say we did have a ticket in which only the person at the top won. We'd really have a hard time doing anything because all of these executive positions, the powers are are separate. The governor certain does the budget and determines the direction and builds plans. The commissioner of labor has to do everything regarding jobs and and uh, employment conditions. So it, it's important that we win all the way up and down if, if we're going to win this. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, part of your role as running as a voter education, but mm-hmm. yeah, I'd be interested to know what, what have you learned that surprised you from talking to people all around the state? Um, I've, I, I've been asked this question before, and I yeah. really couldn't come up with a. Someone asked me, what did you learn about yourself? Well, I wasn't asking I, that. I was yeah, more what you, you learned about Georgia. Um, yeah. I've learned a ton about Georgia. One, yeah. I think that Georgia is, for a long time, we've been developing Georgia exclusively from Atlanta. And that's a known fact, and Atlanta just keeps spreading out further and further. But I think we're at a crit- critical juncture where a lot of rural Georgia is ready to develop as well. 
You know, I can see it in these little towns that are quite beautiful, where there's one farm-to-table restaurant that's opened up and uh, one new business that's there. All we need is this little push, and this state can, as a whole, can be a thriving place for everyone. I think by thinking about um, workforce development, which sounds boring, if we think about jobs and we think about employment and we think about new businesses in a much broader way, that we can really make the state uh, uh, just to, to bring it to thrive. Yeah, because you actually, uh, despite saying you didn't know what to, what to answer, you actually predicted my next question, which was, <laughs> what are the things that rural Georgians need in comparison to the Atlanta workforce? Because as, as you mentioned properly, I think mm-hmm. uh, most of the attention is paid to Atlanta, but Georgia is yeah. a very big state, and Atlanta's yeah. only a part of it. Well, to show how it, it all fits together, there's, of course, uh, health insurance is something that all Georgians need. And the fact that we haven't expanded Medicaid, and this is, of course, the, one of the primary platform positions of, of, of Stacey Abrams' uh, campaign, is the expansion of Medicaid. Because we're turning down hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, a lot of ac- that would provide access to, uh, to health care for rural Georgia. If you don't have access to decent health care in a place like uh, Dade County, businesses are not going to open there. And it's not just the jobs, it's a double whammy because there are jobs involved in the healthcare industry itself. And there's also the opening up new businesses. What company is going to come to a place where its employees can don't have access to, um, to healthcare? So I think that's the absolute number one issue. Uh, broadband, we've been talking about as well. Broadband access in the in the in the country, Inf- just some of the infrastructure that, because the general approach has been, and I think it's an approach. You know, I don't I don't hold things against my, the 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 opposing party in a bitter fashion. I do believe that 50 years ago, Georgia was a very different state. It had a lot of land and just wanted to grow, and so the model has been. Get companies to come here, whatever it takes. Give them a tax cut, get them to come to, to settle in Georgia. But we're a much more mature economy right now, and so we have infrastructure problems. Um, I've been in parts of Georgia where they say hey, we don't have the electrical capacity for a company to come here. So that, that's the kind of thing that the public service commissioner would uh, would vote on. And so uh, there, there are a lot of things. It's just the approach so far has been tax cuts for big companies, and that's it. And we need to think seriously about infrastructure, about education, about health insurance and transportation. And it's uh, been quite refreshing to see that the entire Democratic ticket has been pretty unified behind that mm-hmm. message mm-hmm. of, we, you know, we need a unified approach and all these different positions working together. They're interlocking. Yeah. They're interlocking. No, just, uh, I mean, in, in a field like education, which is my own, I do not believe that the free market will ever make the investments we need for a four-year-old to be able to get a job when she turns 18 no, or 22 or whatnot. Those are things that take teachers, that take investment, that take thought and forethought because companies are there to, to make money as they should be you know? and, and we want the companies to make money they should not have to make the kind of investments they should you know a company you invite them to come in and, and require them to make a fire department a police department those are things that I think the, that the government that we elect people to have them uh, so that they get done.
Right. And as Commissioner of Labor, what what things would you advocate specifically for mm-hmm. rural Georgia that you know your opponent's not doing now? Um, I've been talking about three things for all of Georgia. I'll tell you what I've been saying on the stump first, and then we'll think about uh, specific things for rural Georgia. But I've been talking about the, the need for our career centers to expand into rural Georgia and to also improve their quality. Right now, from what I've heard from, from thousands of people that I've talked to, is that the, un, the career centers have become unemployment agencies. When you're out of a job, you just got fired or you just lost your job and you need a check, you go to the unemployment agency and then you fill out some forms every week to show that you're looking for a job and you receive those benefits for a while. Um, but the real challenge in Georgia is underemployment or people that are caught in a low-paying job and, and do not see or do not understand how they can get the training to move into a, a higher-paying job. Um, and the career centers should be doing that. So getting what our universities, our technical colleges, our apprenticeship programs, uh, even vocational training in, in the high schools, uh, continued education programs for, for adults in any careers, all of that needs to be in a central location um, that is at the same time accessible to the entire state. That's a huge, a huge endeavor. But I know that we can do it with with the internet. If we had broadband, of course, it would be much easier to set up a little satellite in a in a public library in some of these counties that have a population of 3,000. Um, we're obviously not going to open up a multi-million dollar center in there, but we could go to a public library and have a computer station and call it the the uh, Department of Labor office, because a lot of these people are just too far from the career centers to even walk in, and then when they get there, there's not the kind of information they need. So I'd like for someone like you, or uh, an electrician who wants to, who has worked for five years and says, oh, I'd like to be an electrical engineer, um, to be able to walk in and say, look, I'm not out of a job. I have these qualifications. How do I get to the next step of my life? How do I make my career better and make Georgia stronger? And you say you're going to mention oh, some. Yes, and there's the number things. two. Yeah, I always talk about. Um, I talk about our veterans. I'm a veteran of the United States Navy. I served for seven years, and it was a great experience for me. I learned leadership. I learned uh, what it was like to have forty. At the time, they were all men on the ships. Now we have a more integrated Navy, but four guy, forty guys from all over the country, from different backgrounds, to do teamwork and whatnot. And right now, I don't think we're doing enough to serve our veterans when they come back. I've spoken to quite a few veterans on the, on the trail. Uh, one of them had uh, broken his back in the line of duty, and he was discharged and really felt that he didn't have any assistance whatsoever when he transitioned out. And he came to Georgia. He was living in a camper for a couple months. You know, he con- considered himself homeless. And... Uh, but especially just that feeling of being lost after being in a, a very structured society centered around teamwork for a long time. And then you go out into the real world where, you know, everyone's sort of on their own. Um, that's something we need to, to do a lot better job. And the wage uh, gap for women is my third uh, issue I've been talking about every time I speak. Um, because women make 81 cents on the dollar in this state. 69 cents for an african-american woman and 49 cents for latinas and this uh is a problem for all of uh for 50 percent of georgians children 
Nearly 50% of Georgian's children live in a household where the primary breadwinner is a woman. So it, all of those things we're talking about in education and all of the needs for uh, wraparound services and things like this could be significantly reduced if women were paid on par with men. These children would have $9,000 more on average in the household for, to buy books, to make sure they have glasses, to make sure they get something good to eat before they go to school, all of these things. So those, those three things are more generally for Georgia, but I've been driving around and what we wanna do is have an advisory committees as um, when I'm commissioner of labor from the different areas, people from education, people from business, people from, from labor that are invested in the local community to define what they uh, what they believe is bet is most needed in that in that community. There's a thing called the Spartanburg Academic Movement. I only heard about it in the last couple months or something like this. But it, the idea is is that in uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, they they just decided to get everyone on board on uh, all hands on deck to address social and economic development challenges that they were having and because for a long time I think what we've had is the idea that money um, goes up to the federal government and comes back and then is sprinkled down by by politicians who are, who have who are going to help agencies that have helped them and it creates a spirit of competition between these entities that should be doing this should be working together so that's why we've put so much uh, Becky and I have put so many miles on the on the Ford hybrid that we've driven around the state. Betsy, we're calling her, and um, because it's it, it, we need to meet a lot of people, and I think I've met not even one percent of the people that I need to meet, and so it'll continue to do that, so that we can figure out, you know, what is the best solution. It's it's nice for us in Atlanta. We we all want a super transportation hub. We'd love to solve the problem of Atlanta traffic and have trains wisping us from here to there. But it might be down that in Albany, they want something else. You know, they might need a different sort of structure, but it's clear that they do need investment in, in these areas. And often I think it's even just in the form of information investment and infrastructure when you go to these places and, and there's really no way for them to get access to the knowledge of how to apply for a business loan a small business loan so that they can develop an idea that they might have um i think that's uh that's the approach that i would take yeah that that, that makes a lot of sense and um you you've kind of hit on this uh, indirectly but I would like you to directly hit on what what are the things that your uh, opponent is currently doing what policies are of his are you in disagreement with and are, are there any you're in agreement with yeah i mean th there have been some things that i do agree agree with um there has been a little bit more emphasis on vocational training in the last couple of years than in the past that is a national trend because i think we've realized that we've uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater in a lot of cases that a lot of industries have, are, have lost their technical edge because we're not providing workers that can go into those fields. Um, and vocational training has just sort of disappeared from our, from our school curriculum. So to be replaced by, you know, computer IT and that kind of stuff. And, and I think that that's a trend that we need to go back to. 
what I, I most have, have been emphasizing, the difference is, is that I believe that the commissioner of labor's job is to really think about what it's like to work in Georgia. Uh, not, you know, there are plenty of office holders who have the interests of corporations and businesses at heart, and maybe that's okay, but the commissioner of labor is there to look after workers. And that does include having thriving businesses. You know, our businesses need to thrive. If we don't have jobs, we don't have workers. But we need to think very seriously about the long-term stability of our workforce. We can't have everyone having to decide everything all the time. You know, your health insurance. By people not having stable health insurance in this state, we cut down on the ability of young people to become entrepreneurs. No, people are not going, if people have to, if you have to work at Whole Foods in order to have health insurance, how can you ever start your dream company and take the risk to move out there? Some people that have a pre-existing condition in particular would never be able to do that because they're afraid they will have no coverage if anything happens. So we need to think seriously about what the what we're doing to make sure that our 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 workforce is uh, is safe, um, productive, and has a path toward a better life. Yeah, and you mentioned even in your own lifetime how much changes you've seen in the workforce. And one one thing I'd be uh, curious to hear hear your opinion on is uh, it's funny the the first person we had on this uh, podcast to talk to us uh, besides just the shows that I was doing with my co-host was Jason Carter. And one of the big oh. things that he uh, was talking about uh, was the idea of portable benefits and that mm-hmm. the sense you know back uh, you know uh, when when you were growing up yep. you could have started somewhere exactly. worked there most of your career had a retirement had health care through them. Uh, whereas now it, it's very likely that after I graduate, I will probably work at like a dozen different a places, dozen and that be jobs, and that be right? okay. Like that not be a mm-hmm. bad thing. But you, as you mentioned, that does mean you kind of jump between health insurance plan, health insurance plan, or retirement plan, or retirement plan. And so there have been many that have advocated uh, for trying to innovate in the area of having health insurance that follows you no matter where mm-hmm. you go, uh, jobs and retirement plans and etc. So I just be yeah. curious. No, that's interesting because. Uh, since you're shout, giving a shout out to Jason Carter, um, I will note that he did endorse me during the primary, and so uh, we do agree on a lot of things, and this this is certainly one of them, and and it's one of the reasons that I've been saying that we can learn a lot from our labor unions, and uh, I know that this is a right to work state, and the culture of labor unions is not as strong as it is in in a lot of other places. But uh, labor unions have apprenticeship programs that are, that are second to none. They provide job training and a path to the middle class for a lot of people. But one of the things that they've, all, they've always had is if you're a member, let's say you're an electrician, and you work contract to contract, but you're a member of the IBEW, your insurance is provided through the IBEW. And so they have that transferability. They've been doing this for years. And we need to think about that for a lot of other professions, you know, so that, so that people do not lose their house every time there's a change in job or a change in an industry. Um, it's just not a sustainable uh, model. And if you think about the fact that most of the other industrialized nations have these things already in place, that puts our companies at a competitive disadvantage. Now, if, if we had, if, if health insurance and 
retirement plans were not linked to the specific job you're working in, it would make us much more flexible in the way we uh, approach uh, moving from one job to the next. Yeah. I know you guys could be a busy schedule. Uh, you got anything else that you need to hit? Just the importance of voting in this election. Yes, we're trying to say that every episode. So yes. I'm happy you George, said that. Georgia is. Uh, we've been saying it's 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 a democratic state that has lost its way because we have one of the lowest turnouts in the United States. Georgia historically. It is rated very, very low in its participation in its own democracy. And that leads to cynicism and that leads to people uh, allowing politicians who are not representing their people's interests to stay there. Now, cynicism only benefits the, the politicians who, who stay for four, eight, like my opponent, um, 14 years, like some of the other uh, House, House District representatives and, and things like that. Um, so I think it's vastly important. It's a duty for everyone to vote. I don't buy this whole, you know, I served in the Navy. I believe in duty, that there are things that you have to do. It's your duty to go out there and vote. And I feel confident that uh, people that, and it's in, one, one other philosophical point I would just point out is that Often we've heard, um, oh, I haven't fallen in love with this candidate or that candidate yet. This is not a love story we're dealing with. This is electing a representative of a specific office. And generally we have two or maximum three people that are on the menu. Um, and it's our duty to participate in this. And if, if 100% of Georgians voted we would have a much better, much more representative uh, system. And this year, I know if we have a uh, big voter turnout, the, the Democrats will win because we have a better slate of, of candidates. We've uh, raised a lot of, of money. We've knocked on a lot of doors. We've done what a party is supposed to be doing to get to people. I do still think we're in a, in a phase of growth. I think it'll be much better four years from now. But this is the year that, uh, that I think we're going to do really well. And I hope people will come out and do what they can to help us win this election. Yeah, and I uh, very strongly agree with you and think it's uh, urgent that people do vote because there's a, a lot at stake uh, this election. And so I uh, appreciate you putting yourself out there. One more thing I just wanted to say, because I'm supposed to tell people my website ah. is Keatley for Georgia, all spelled out. Uh, you can find out information about my priorities, uh, my endorsements, and how to make a donation to the campaign. I do still need a little bit of money because we're driving Betsy all over the state and uh, trying to reach people. And I especially need people to tell their neighbors, tell their friends about the importance of this race. If you think about if you're a Democrat and you want Democrats to win up and down the ticket and you tell them about my race, you're essentially educating them on voting the whole ticket because I'm almost at the bottom. They're the PS, public service commissioners right below on the ticket. But um, uh, we need your help. So help us get there. As we, as we like to do at the end of uh, our conversations, I like to flip the table and have you ask me a question. So what, what question do you have for me? Yeah, what do you think is the most uh, important jobs and economic development challenge for the Athens area? Mm. I think the biggest problem in Athens in like job development is also just in 
totality one of the biggest problems in Athens is that there are it's a tale of two cities it's just the same geographic area there is the city mm-hmm. that thinks only of the university and there's the city that thinks of everything but the university mm-hmm. and so uh, because of that most of the time and attention of the you know city government and at times our uh, representatives can be on what the university needs rather than what mm-hmm. Athens needs right. um, and I think that hasn't really helped us all that much because there's been some talk of trying to like turn Athens into like the Silicon Valley of Georgia, which I mean, mm-hmm. that could be really cool. That could be great. Um, and you know, the university would benefit from that for sure. Uh, but there's a very large population in Athens that, you know, is very, very much so in deep poverty and that, that pathway mm-hmm. forward would probably not benefit that population very mm-hmm. much. And so I think the biggest thing that Athens really needs is a, is a holistic approach because we shouldn't mm-hmm. shut off either door. Yeah, you know, yeah. we should, we oh, should, absolutely. yeah, if we can make Athens the Silicon Valley, great, let's do it. But let's also make sure that um, our uh, residents that have uh, lived in Athens their whole lives are being taken care of and having the opportunities because that will make the whole community better, make uh-huh. the city more attractive. And no, I, that's a good, that's a really good point. The whole town and gown um, conflict, yeah. which it, historically I don't know if you know, but um, you know I did my PhD at Yale, um, where where Stacy did her, Stacy Abrams did her law degree, but. Um, there holds historically it was so bad in the 1870s that the townies the the, the citizens of of new haven uh took the cannons from the national guard and were pointing them at the university and were ready to blow you know to blow the place to bits yeah so we haven't gotten that bad you know universities should be should set the example and should pay living wages to their their employees and should do everything they can to make the area around them a vibrant as vibrant as their ideas are. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I'm sure you know that the uh, university workers are working on unionizing. I do. And I so, do know that. Yeah, and I've so. been endorsed by them as well. Yeah. So <laughs> I have a lot of friends uh, in that effort, and we're going to have them on soon. And so it's a, I think it's a positive step, and it'll be uh, good to see what comes from that. But yeah. uh, I want to thank you for uh, being on Peach Pong, and thank you for your time, and good luck on the trail. Thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you, Luke, for that conversation with Richard Keatley. Um, so, so with that, we are going to leave this week's show there. Uh, but Megan Payne, thanks for joining for another podcast. As always, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And Jessica Salaji, thanks for coming back on the show. Thanks for putting up with me, your token libertarian. <laughs> no, we love having you on. <laughs> yes, you're you're one of our favorite guests. We will uh, try to make you a permanent member of the show probably after the election. <laughs> Uh, cat's out of the bag now for you listeners alright guys we are going to leave it there so bye guys Bye. that's our show for the week if you like what you heard share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review it really helps other people find our show we'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week until then take care y'all